Brothers and sisters, earlier this week, I was driving in my Java Metallic 2008 Nissan Maxima. <laughs> yeah, you know me. I drive around our community doing various errands for the story. If you see me, be sure to wave. <laughs> Hello! <laughs> so I've just picked up new ammunitions for the stories. <laughs> well, it doesn't matter what the ammunition was for. But as I'm driving out of the parking lot, all of a sudden, <laughs> Brothers and sisters, if you've heard that sound, you know how I felt. Uh-oh. I popped the hood, because I know my Java Metallic 2008 Nissan Maxima like it was my 2003 Nissan Maxima. And wouldn't you know it, a live snake, once again! had entered my vehicle, coiled between the pistons, and died a most grisly death. I said what I always say when this happens. The story must be told. The story must be told. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, when you get down to it, we are all cars. A beep beep, a honk honk, you, me, grandmas, and grandpas. We come in all colors. We love to travel, and we are all full of gas. <laughs> no, but really. It's because like the car, like a Nissan Maxima, we are an empty vessel waiting for a driver. The story is my driver. I don't choose what I eat for breakfast. Don't choose what I say to my friends, what I do to my family. I don't do anything. The story does not first command me. But the story is not the only driver we face. Do not welcome the serpent, nor the sheep. Be a vessel for the story alone. We now entertain a psalm from our dear brother Reed. Drip, drip, drip. Drip, drip, drip. Drip, 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 drip. Uh-oh. Slip, slip. Slip, slip, slip. Slip, slip. Ouch! Rip, rip. Rip, 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 rip. Oh no! The tip, the tip, the tip, the tip, the tip. It ripped when I slipped on that drip. Brother Reed, that was an excellent reminder to be vigilant of drips, whatever form they might take. Story knows we fall prey to all kinds of drips. But may they be the healthy condensation of story proper and not the stink drip of story false. Plunk one in us, O oh story, I beseech thee, you, the dropper of drips pure, the story must be told. This story must be told. The new consciousness in town by... Gaggle's Turkeyman. Randy Melkin worked at the Swift Lube on Box Street for 14 years before his consciousness dissolved, his body was subsumed, and he ceased to be a human being. 
After that, he worked for three more months. Randy Melkin worked at the Swift Lube on Box Street right until he laid down on its luby floor one Thursday afternoon, closed his eyes, and stopped breathing. He was not alone when he died, far from it. In fact, Randy died with every member of the Swift Lube organism, each of them croaking instantaneously in an impressive act of synchronized dying. Long before Randy's mind slipped free, he was the hardest worker at the Swift Lube on Box Street. Randy owned several changes of the Swift Lube uniform, charcoal slacks and sky blue polo shirt with his name stitched on the breast pocket, because he didn't just wear the uniform at work. He wore the outfit to church every Sunday, once to a wedding, and he always wore it when picking up his daughter Amelia from soccer. He owned other clothes, but none of them swelled his eyes with dewy pride like the uniform. Really, uniform was the wrong word. The slacks and polo were vestments, an exoskeleton. Randy's wife had died 10 years prior from a hereditary condition no doctor had named, but would most fittingly be called dumb lung. Her epiglottis never closed completely, and the lungs pumped saliva into themselves with every breath until she internally drowned four days after Christmas. Some men turned to drinking after such a loss, others to the church, but when Randy found healing, it was in the lube-streaked concrete of the Swift Loop on Box Street. First, he found calm in the routine, changing oil and spreading lubricant until the tradition of it distracted him from crying. Then, he found friendship in the clients and mechanics, a network of trust and companionship to replace the love he lost. Finally, he found wisdom in the Swift Lube corporate culture. There was a certain attention to detail, purpose in the challenging quotas, and peace and repetition that filled the gaps in his heart like sealant on a gasket. In quiet moments alone with the employee handbook, Randy sensed a loving spirit between the words and diagrams, a wisdom guiding the Midwestern chain from above. He was more correct than he could anticipate. It was a late Tuesday afternoon when the dissolution occurred. Though the mechanics Randy managed had left for the day, Randy was still helping an elderly woman who had brought in her Oldsmobile Alero for a tire rotation minutes before closing. Are you sure it's not a bother? the woman asked. You couldn't bother me if you tried, Randy grinned over the pneumatic groan of the car lift. He stepped under the rusted vehicle for a cursory inspection. He felt at home here. And gazing up at the undercarriage, he felt a strange peace settle into him, like bread sopping up honey. He knew what the car required, he knew how fast it would take, and how much it would cost. He knew which tools he would need, how many times he turned the wrench, and he knew which tire would be first and which tire would be last. It was all so certain. In that moment, his brain and habits were kindling, wet with gasoline, unknowingly eager for a spark. Eyes to the ceiling, a single drip of oil gathered, fell, and wet the crease between Randy's brows. Plunk. A minute of silence passed, Randy gazing skyward, unmoving. Is there a problem? The elderly woman asked. Randy would have responded, but he no longer understood words, which oddly did not bother him. His consciousness had fallen to pieces, his free will crisped in a blaze. 
His train of thought stopped, the passengers exited their cars in an orderly fashion, then drowned themselves in an adjacent river. Randy was anointed. Drool began to gather on his lip and dribble to stain the sky-blue polo. If before Randy had imagined his soul as a chatty little point between his ears, now he felt like it was a booming giant dot, so large it contained everything he saw. Strangely, this change didn't make it harder to function. If anything, his body suddenly made sense. Sir? the woman inquired. Mm, Randy responded. Though he could speak no actual words, Randy completed the tire rotation with alien focus. He also changed the oil, replaced the windshield wipers, refilled the coolant, and sealed the gaskets, each in record time. Though the shapes of the numbers held no meaning to Randy, he punched the buttons on the cash register to accurately read $248. Oomph, Randy told the woman. I, I only had enough for the rotation, the woman replied. With surprising speed, Randy's body raised a wrench over his head and swung at the woman, breaking the wrist she raised in defense. He swung again and she tumbled back beyond his reach. She fled and consumed by novel passion, Randy followed her, but for just three more seconds. Then the clock struck seven. Closing time. Wrench in hand, Randy locked the doors, closed the garage, and collapsed to dreamless sleep on the concrete. The Randy that was, was gone. Having shed the clumsy weight of humanity, he had become a cell for a new, more encompassing organism. Randy was now Swift Lube. The next morning, moments after the Swift Lube on Box Street opened, the mechanics arrived to find Randy hard at work on a Chevy Nova. The driver's side window was shattered apart, and though they were unaware, the license plate matched the report for a missing vehicle being filed that very instant. A mechanic in a wrinkled polo tried to make a joke. <laughs> Jeez, Randy, did he even leave last night? Randy said nothing in response. He merely twisted his wrench and let oil drip down his forehead in greasy sacrament. Jesus, Randy, he don't need to do that. Here, let me... Before the mechanic in the wrinkled shirt could intervene, Randy slammed his palm into the bridge of the man's nose. Blood sputtered from his nose in cherry globs, and he wailed loudly, Ah, I was just trying to help! Randy returned promptly to the Nova to finish repairs on the rusting undercarriage. He had already forgotten about the incident, though his palm still stung from shattering the man's nasal bone. While another co-worker escorted the bloody mechanic to the ER... Randy equalized the tires, replaced the broken window, and returned the car to where he found it. The newer hires were startled by Randy's behavior, but the veteran mechanics reassured them. Don't worry, he gets like this. After his wife died? Whew, he weren't shit for a conversation, but he doubled his quota that month. In a week's time, Randy would do more than double his quota. He would meet the quotas of each and every worker in the Swift Loop on Box Street. After a few days of the new Randy, the mechanics formerly under his supervision had reversed roles, watching Randy do their work for them, disturbed and enthralled in equal parts by his newfound efficiency. It was eerie, but undeniably impressive. That same day, Amelia arrived at the Swift Loop on Box Street with a counselor from the school, Mrs. Gladworst. 
After the girl had failed to attend school for three days with no excuse from a parent, Mrs. Gladwurst drove to the Melkin household, discovered the inconsolable student. The day of Randy's transformation, Amelia had walked home from soccer to find an empty house. She called her father's cell phone 48 times, leaving 36 messages. She had gone into shock over fear of losing yet another parent and, much like Randy 10 years earlier, had avoided her fears with diligent, thought-suffocating work. Mrs. Gladworth entered the sun-bleached Melkin household to find the 15-year-old scrubbing the oven with a toilet brush, her soccer uniform covered in soot and cleaning solution. The counselor sprang to action. She called family, the church, the police, and Randy's bank. Finally, she called the Swift Lube on Box Street. Randy's not dead, said a confused voice on the phone. He's breaking records. Amelia and the counselor arrived at the Swift Lube soon after. Upon hearing their approach, Randy waved Mrs. Gladworth's car into the garage to replace the squealing brake pads. Dad? Amelia asked the man who was once her father. Randy ignored her voice, instead pushing his only living relative and Mrs. Gladworth out of the car and onto the garage floor. He drove the car onto a lift as the counselor attempted to shout for his attention. He stepped out and wheeled himself beneath the vehicle. Dad, what's wrong? The girl sobbed, tears forming trails through the soot on her cheeks. Dad? Randy's body looked his daughter in the eye. It was a coincidence, of course. The box of brake pads was sitting on a bench behind her. All the same, Amelia saw the vacancy in Randy's eyes, the same she had seen in her mother's embalmed corpse. She remembered how devoted Randy became to his job in those following months. She remembered how his role as parent became more duty than vocation. She remembered how Randy started saying, I love you, with all the frequency and gusto of ordering a salad. She then cried, but after a few minutes of tears, she tugged on Mrs. Gladworth's skirt. I'm ready to go home now. Amelia would be the only human not surprised by her father's transformation. In a way, it explained everything. Randy's behavior, the incident with the daughter especially, had the whole staff of the Swift Lube worried. Yet none of them tried to stop him, least of all the mechanic with a broken nose. Belvin Little, Randy's assistant manager, tried taking a less confrontational approach. He simply stood by Randy, helping him gather tools, talking to him in calm, even tones. Belvin figured eventually he would break through, find the raw nerve in Randy's brain that would explain his behavior. It was the opposite that happened. After two days of gentle assistance while they were repairing a leaky gasket, Belvin felt his thoughts go foggy, colorless. He would have said it was like falling asleep, that is, if words still meant anything to him. One minute, it was a man in a human-sized cell working on a Honda Civic. The next minute, they were just two cells. In nature, there are many phenomena science would call a state change. The most recognizable for humans is water turning to ice. After a certain threshold of temperature and pressure, molecules of water change alignment, stack themselves, and self-organize. It takes only a single crystal of ice to spur the transition, infecting each neighboring molecule with its new rules. Randy was a similar kind of crystal, but not a crystal of physical properties, rather a crystal of consciousness. Belvin was the second crystal, 
and he would not be the last. Three days after Belvin's transformation, four other employees would similarly shed their humanity. Now a team of six, the cells quickly met the Swiftlu branch's yearly quota in just a single week. Five days after that, the entire staff of the Swift Lube on Box Street was converted to cells of the Swift Lube organism. Before, Randy's means for carrying out Swift Lube's desires were limited. Now, with a whole organ's worth of devoted corporate husks, Swift Lube was capable of far grander deeds. On the following Monday morning, the cells of the Swift Lube on Box Street woke up exactly when the store opened for the day. They gathered wrenches in their hands, left the garage, and marched down Box Street in formation like a Roman guard. The first faulty car they encountered was a Volkswagen Rabbit. Several members of the formation now had specialized roles, and upon hearing the crackling wheeze of a broken catalytic converter, they began to chirp in guttural yelps. They alerted the others. In cohesive movements, human appendages of the swift lube organism reached out to the car, ripped the door open, and forcefully ejected the driver and passenger waiting at a red light. What the fuck? What the fuck? What the... Was all the driver could disagree before being brained by a wrench to the temple. Blah! He spurted as he fell to the ground, blood pooling in his ears. The passenger ran to the sidewalk, trying to bargain, taking off her rings and throwing her cash. She ran to the police shortly after, but if she had waited a mere 20 minutes, she would have seen the car return to the same stoplight with a brand new catalytic converter purring quietly. The blood would even be mopped. The police weren't sure what to make of the report, but soon it was no longer a single incident. There were 68 cases of forced repairs that first day, double that many the next when the swift loop on Eagle Boulevard was likewise assimilated. Within a month, every swift lube in the state operated under a single consciousness. The reports of carnage soon overwhelmed the local police precincts, many of whom saw their own family subsumed by the toxic corporate entity. A federal investigator was sent to the town and drove only four yards into the swift lube service area before an organ of grease-stained hands and blue polo shirts dragged him bleeding through it seconds prior was only a chipped window shield, now a collection of safety glass chunklets. After he woke, but before he died, he alerted the National Guard. Steady, hold steady, the acting commander spoke over earpiece to her soldiers. They were arranged behind the Vincelli's Pizza on the intersection of Box Street and Germain Avenue. Another battalion was across the street, surveying from an abandoned real estate office, and another was two blocks down on DuPont Street, organizing medical tents, jeeps, and three tanks. It was 6.58 a.m. By this point, accounts had grown from interviews and local news affiliates to recurring segments on 24-hour news networks. The most memorable showed mobs of blue-shirted, middle-aged men carefully buckling a blood-stained infant car seat into an empty sedan. The commander had seen the carnage remotely, but it did not adequately prepare her. Sweat stung her eyes as the clock struck seven, and blinking, she missed the moment the hordes of human cells streamed from the swift loop in an unholy human amoeba. She heard the gunshots first. Fire! 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 Over the course of two and a half hours, the National Guard shot and killed 42 cells of Swift Loop. In that same time, the Guard lost 68 wholly individual men and women. 
Some were bludgeoned by wrenches, others ripped into meaty chunks by circles of grasping, nailless fingers. In 9.33, they were ordered to retreat. A group of high-ranking officials weighed the outcome of the massacre from the safety of an underground bunker. Drinks were provided. At first, these leaders of men discussed strategy, weaponry, and civilian casualties. But eventually, over a round of Manhattans, they noted the nearly $6 million worth of repairs provided to their jeeps, tanks, and other such armored vehicles over the course of hours of onslaught. It was the Utah senator, drinking a Shirley Temple, who said that while families were grieving, if they knew how much they'd saved as taxpayers, perhaps they'd cry a little less. From that moment on, a new approach was decided, and soon news stations in the tri-state were issuing clear warnings. Do not engage. Run and save. Two months later, there was not a single worker at a single swift loop spared from assimilation. Drivers were accustomed to checking mirrors for roving packs of sky-blue polo shirts. Doors kept unlocked. Parked cars were left with their windows open. There were more deaths, but negligible in the grand scheme of overall savings. Meanwhile, Swift Loop was surpassing even the wildest of quotas. All three of their competitors shuttered locations. The cell that was Randy Melkin had changed with the addition of so many other cells. He was out of the front lines and back to management, adapted to join other cells as a kind of corporate thyroid. From along his spinal column, his vertebrae had sprouted hollow, bony protrusions, like skeletal drinking straws. When cries of <coughs> echoed down Box Street, the cell that was Randy would form a tight circle with other such adapted cells, their backs to the center, and together they would expel pale yellow liquid from the spouts in their back. In a previous state of consciousness, Randy may have been proud of his new job, his rapid ascension up the corporate ladder. It was quite the promotion. But now the only words he had for it were mm, and hisses of sprayed saliva. One Thursday afternoon, after three months of forced car theft and repair, every single car in Swift Lube's service area was perfectly repaired. This included cars left abandoned on the side of the road, decades-old cars rusting in junkyards now shiny and glowing, stacked in piles by broken toasters and sanitary napkins. Inhabitants of those areas had become accustomed to the scouting cell's ears, but those listening heard something else that afternoon. At a decibel nearly out of human range, groups of swift loop cells began to whistle with their mouths closed like boiling kettles. In tight formation with the other members of the thyroid, the cell that was Randy began to vibrate bodily, and from the exhaust holes dotting his spine, he squirted a smoking substance the color of tar that smelled like a hot mouth. Moments later, packs of cells retreated to their swift lube hubs across the tri-state, leaving roads and alleys suspiciously free of sky-blue polo shirts. The few cells held in government containment for study struggled against their restraints, breaking ribs and femurs in violent attempts at freedom. An hour later, they would die as calmly as all the others. After two days of silence, when the government investigated the Swift Loop locations, they found a scene that made Jonestown look amateurish and unorganized. In neat rows of 12, lines of human cells stretched from wall to wall of each looby garage floor, face up, 
eyes open, body still. They did not suffocate. They were not poisoned. They simply stopped living. The bodies were sorted and delivered back to their respective families. And while Amelia was notified of her father's death, she did not cry this time. She did not request a funeral. It was difficult to blame Swiftlube for what it had done. This is not to say people were not angry, or the answers were not sought and legislation passed, but that the effect was insignificant. Humans as individuals could not judge this new higher realm of consciousness from their low perch in the orders of organization. No more than a bee could rebel against a hive, or a carbon atom could protest a diamond. When similar state changes occurred the following summer for Lego, PepsiCo, and the Catholic Church, most humans ceased their efforts to understand. They stopped asking how, and they stopped asking why. If coworkers gathered around the water cooler to chat in sober voices about the latest cluster of human cells, their opinions were all variations of the same concern. When will it happen to us? The story must be told. Brothers and sisters, while that story was told, my mechanic, Hermply, uh, sent me a little bit of a text message. <laughs> well, it turns out the snake wasn't dead. <laughs> it was pregnant, so he took it to the vet and it delivered a whole litter of half snake, half puppies. Thirty of them. Some with a serpent's head and dog legs. Some with a dog's head and a serpent's belly. So I got an idea. Let's meet behind the church of the story. Everyone bring a, a wad of cash. We'll get in a circle, we'll throw some money down, and we'll try to breed those half-snake, half-dogs with the half-dog, half-snakes. Who knows what we'll make? Maybe, maybe a dog with a snake head. One arm is slithery, the other arm is strong, like a Great Danes. And we'll breed and breed like Gregor Mendel did to those poor peas. A fire we will start. A spit we will twist, and all the evil creation will be real sweet and stuck into a stew. Mmm, I can already hear the crow crow a bubbling. I can already hear the plop plop drop of the snake dog dog snake 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 dog dog hybrids. And ooh, we should bring an electric carving knife because I'm gonna slice those out and fill our bellies pure with that evil, abominable grease. Meet me in the parking lot. Thank you for listening to The Story Must Be Told and Once I Went to Prison. We're proud to be hosted on The Last Podcast Network and I was due in time for breaking into the lion's den at the Cincinnati Zoo. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TSMBTPod. And hey, Pastor Andrew, Brother Reed, and Sister Callista are now on Twitter at PSTRAndrew, at Our Brother Reed, at Sister Callista, and all those prisoners. Oh, they did not take a liking to me. No siree. Buy one of our shirts. Hey, we have a new one. You should buy it and support us. Find the link on our Twitter, Instagram, and SoundCloud. Oh, boy. But some of them liked me just a little too 
much. Oh yeah, a bunch of crime ladies wanted me to join their crime lady gang. Rate and review us. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and tell your friends about us. Spread the story. You know, I refused and they said, nuh-uh, no, nuh-uh, you're one of us now. This was a Post Everything production. Learn more at posteverythingproductions.com. We have short films and all sorts of free extra content. I hopped the fence and they never saw me again. We'll be back next week, but don't tell anyone because I'm on the run and... Oh, God. Oh, God, no. They found me. No. What do I do? What do I do? Oh, God. Oh, God. Yeah, Devin's such a rat fuck. He's a rat fuck. He's an idiot. He disgusts me. The story must be told. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Yeah.